beautiful and palatial UltimateSportsTalk.com radio studios. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Ultimate Sports Talk Show. I am Dave Mitchell. Glad to have you along this evening after a week's hiatus where it seems like all hell broke loose. We are back to talk to you about the sports scene. Please forgive my voice, but uh, the polar vortex that has been running through this part of the country has attacked my throat, and hopefully we'll be able to get through the next hour of Talking Sports. Nonetheless, boy, I'll tell you what, just a lot of stuff has happened since the night after Christmas that we last talked to you. The college bowl season is finally over. Florida State is the champion, but is Jameis Winston out of the woods legally? The Cleveland Browns are a whirlwind again. There are new Baseball Hall of Fame inductees, and the Cleveland Cavaliers have made a trade, and they've finally got the wing player they've been looking for for, I think, about the last 20 years. But first, Rod Chudzinski is out as coach of the Cleveland Browns. If you've been asleep under a rock in a cave or wherever, you probably know that by now. And whoever would take this job is anyone's question. Would you want a job where you have no idea who you're coaching from week to week? You get absolutely no help from the front office, no support from the front office, or anything substantial to work with. It's a move that nobody saw coming. One thing the Browns front office is good at is keeping secrets. And just when you thought it was safe to be the coach of the football team in Cleveland, Jimmy Hamslam and Joe Banner let everyone know that that wasn't the case. In a press release announced after his firing, Chudzinski said that he was shocked and disappointed to hear the news that he was fired. He is a Cleveland Brown to the core and always will be. Now, don't feel too bad for Chud because when he was let go, he received a check for a reported $10 million just to leave the building. Jimmy Haslam said earlier this year that for this team to be successful this season, they had to be better in the last three games of the year than they were in the first three games of the season. As the season developed and what was, you know, really a, a really nice start, um, and as we got later into the season, it was our feeling that as a team we were not getting better. And yes, we had a young team, but. I think if we reflect on it, we would all say a young team should get better, and we simply didn't feel like that was happening. Well, this team was young, except in two key possessions. That would be quarterback, where Jason Campbell is 31 years old, and by all indications, he's an old 31 years old. And running back, Willis McGahee's 34 years old and playing on a pair of legs that are probably about 50. Now, according to reports, the team brass had soured on Chudzinski down the stretch because of a lack of effort and accountability on the part of his players. He also had a seven-game losing streak, including the 20-7 loss to Pittsburgh on the final Sunday of the season to cap a 4-12 and season, and that didn't help. Cleveland's front office directed Chudzinski about a month ago to cut a player for accountability issues, and Chud refused. According to this report, the front office didn't feel that the players were being held accountable, and they wanted Chud to cut either Brandon Whedon or wide receiver Greg Little. And like I said, Chud refused. Banner said teams during this press conference showed improvement around the league with injured running backs and quarterbacks. Well, who was that? Nobody at this press conference even pressed Banner on that. Tampa Bay was one of the teams that people were talking about. They were down to their second-string quarterback, and they played with an improved running game thanks to the Browns, which I'll get into later. Jacksonville, they were down to their second-string quarterback, too, but they also had all-pro Maurice Jones-Drew. The Browns were on their third-string quarterback, and as I said, a running back in McGahee that was playing on 50-year-old legs. He was a warrior, but not a starting Running back, the front office did nothing to help this team this year. Now, the Browns want to talk that they have a lot of room under the cap, 10 picks in the draft, and a very important offseason again. 
this is like year 19 or 20 of the most very important offseason this team has had to go through. Many in the media during the press conference made fun and chastised a reporter from a local TV station in Cleveland for asking the following question. Listen carefully, because at the very beginning of this question, it's hard to hear it. I'm not a sports guy. I'm a news guy, so new to all this. Uh, so I'm in here as a voice to the fans uh, to ask their questions. Small, small sampling from our Facebook page, as you can imagine, blew up uh, with the news last night. Real quick, uh, this team remains an embarrassment, not only the NFL, but the fans as well. We deserve better. Who really cares anymore? They have lost their fans trying to outsmart the rest of the league, and frankly, they've encouraged apathy instead of hope. And lastly, totally done with anything Browns. Haslam and his, these are their words, Haslam and his stooges, Banner and Lombardi, can pack up and get out of Cleveland. Jimmy, can you assure the fans, their words, not mine, that you don't have the three stooges running this operation? Yeah, listen, uh, I feel really confident we have the right people to take this organization where we need to, okay? And I think what the fans need to understand is, and you all have heard me say on numerous occasions since we've been here about a year and a half now, we have the best fans in the world, okay? And I've said our fans deserve better. And what I want our fans to hear is nobody cares about winning and is going to work any harder to get us there than the people you're looking at right now, particularly the owner, okay? We take this extremely seriously, and I purposely said what I said earlier. It galls me when you all write, and you have the right to do it, and people have the right to say it, same old Browns. It's our single mission to change that. Well, that may be their single mission, and they may be working very hard. But when you don't have the capabilities of doing the job that you have been placed into, it doesn't matter how hard you work. And, of course, the media blew up at this question. The Three Stooges reference was dramatic. Now, this is the reason that I had no problem with that question being asked. Banner, later in the press conference, referred to he and Haslam's track record, his time in Philadelphia, and Andy Reid's first year with the Eagles. I think what should stand out to people is the track record we both have. I mean, when we hired Andy Reid in Philadelphia, he won five games the first year. Uh, there was no consideration for making a change, and we stayed together for 14 years. Uh, I think Andy, refer uh, Jimmy referenced his own uh, career background in terms of continuity and the emphasis on it. Uh, I think the fact that this didn't go well uh, doesn't change the track record we both have and the and attracting good people, recognizing good people, and having continuity once we've done that. The reason I had no problem with that question about the Stooges was because after Banner mentioned his time in Philadelphia, Andy Reid's first year, and Haslam's continuity, the next question from the media was, do you understand the fatigue of Browns fans saying, here we go again? Well, honestly, and I'm a Browns fan through and through, but I'm tired of the Browns fans and their constant complaints. Yes, this team stinks. It has since 99 when it returned. Yes, this team has done nothing since 2007 under Butch Davis. A playoff year, by the way, yet all the fans and media hated Davis so much they couldn't wait to run him out of town. The Browns fans are not the problem, and anything to do with the Browns fans will be fixed by winning. So I don't care what the Browns fans are saying. No offense, but I really don't. But they just need to get off of the Browns fans. But for that question to be the follow-up to the Andy Reid mention is beyond comprehension. The next question should have been, well, Joe, what was the difference in the Reid and Chudzinski first years then? But that was never asked during this press conference. In fact, Reid was never mentioned again. I would have wanted to know just how much input Banner had in the hiring of Reed. Was he just a guy who sat in the room? Was he a guy that asked questions? Did he have any input on the Reed hiring at all? I would also like to know about the continuity in Pilot Flying J right now and the Haslam regime. Less than six months after hiring a top-ranked Coca-Cola executive, to run Pilot Flying J, Jimmy Haslam had to return to the role of CEO. He replaced John Compton, the former PepsiCo president, 
whose hiring was announced in September of 2013, just after Haslam had acquired the Browns. Now, Haslam said at the time he missed being CEO of Pilot Flying J and noted that a team of executives had been hired to run the Cleveland Browns since he bought the team. As it turned out, Pilot Flying J was in trouble with the FBI, and Haslam had to rush back to Tennessee to save his billion-dollar company. Whether that has been accomplished yet is unknown, as the FBI has been tight-lipped on the investigation. But since purchasing the Browns, continuity has not been the norm in either of Haslam's empires, the Browns or Pilot Flying J. Worst-case scenario are the people he hired to run Pilot Flying J proved to be the wrong people. Now, what does that say about his ability to hire anyone that can turn around the Browns? So who wants this job? It's got to be somebody that doesn't care about not having player control, not having any say on the roster. Players can be there for one game and gone the next. The air of continuity Banner and Haslam professed to have is just what drove Chud out of Cleveland. There was no consistency. Look at the case of Bobby Rainey. I talked about him earlier. A running back the front office plucked off the practice squad of the Baltimore Ravens early in the season. He never got a chance to play in Cleveland. He played in six games, carried the ball 13 times for only 34 yards. Yet, when he was released and picked up by Tampa Bay and was placed into their starting lineup, he ran for 532 yards on 137 carries in nine games. What I thought was priceless was the facial expression on Haslam's face during this press conference. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall in the hallway outside of the press room in Cleveland after this conference. Can anyone with the Browns, deny that Haslam had to say to Banner after this press conference, the next time I go through one of these will be when I am announcing you're fired. That has got to be the thought that was going through Jimmy Haslam's mind. And right now when we're looking at this job, who are the coaching candidates? It came out today that Ken Wisenhunt will re-interview for this job. He was one of the candidates he asked uh, last year. And Joe Banner said during this press conference that none of the candidates that they interviewed a year ago would be interviewed again this year. Well, red flag people, Ken Wisenhunt wanted total control over the personnel decisions of the team a year ago, got up and walked out of the interview, and now all of a sudden Wisenhunt is a candidate for this job Again, the Browns, according to many reports today, one out of the Cleveland Plain Dealer and Mary Kay Cabot said that they had an eight-hour interview on Saturday with Josh McDaniels, the offensive coordinator in New England. Of course, he's from Northeast Ohio. Well, he came out and said that he was removing himself from consideration for the Browns opening, and that's because... He, after an eight-hour interview, he was told he's not the front-runner for the job. Well, after eight hours, who could be the front-runner? Do these guys just have a goal of keeping people in an interview room for hours and hours on end and then just decide to move on to somebody else? Who knows? But there are some other, te- other names that are coming out. One of them is Ben McAdoo. Evidently, the Browns have interviewed him. He's the Green Bay Packers quarterback coach. McAdoo emerged as a surprise candidate, and he met with the Browns on Wednesday. He's 36 years old, and, of course, he comes highly recommended from their quarterback, Aaron Rodgers, whom he's worked with for the past two years. Some of the other names that are being linked with the Browns job, Adam Gase. He's the Broncos' offensive coordinator. But why? He's been the offensive coordinator for one year. And in Denver, you're really not the offensive coordinator. You're more of the facilitator for Peyton Manning, who is the offensive coordinator on the field. Then you've got Todd Bowles, the Arizona Cardinals defensive coordinator. Again, why? This supposedly was to satisfy the Rooney rule, 
which means that you have to interview at least one minority candidate. Well, the Browns already had a minority candidate in Ray Horton on their assistant staff. So why not just go ahead and interview him, especially after they just plucked Horton off the Arizona staff a year ago, and Bowles has been a defensive coordinator for only one year. Then we go to the college ranks. There's Gus Malzahn, the Auburn head coach. He was a one-year wonder. So doesn't that totally throw the excuse of Chudzinski right out the window? He's a one-year wonder. Now you want to go with Gus Malzahn. Then comes James Franklin, whom it's been rumored that he is taking the Penn State job. He's been offered that job, and they're saying that he is probably going to accept it. Well, then there are a couple other guys out of the college ranks. Jim Tressel. I was at a high school basketball game a week ago, and when the report came about from Fox Sports that Trestle was going to be one of the coaches interviewed, there was a buzz in that gymnasium. People were excited about Trestle possibly becoming coach of the Browns. And then what did the Browns do? Totally squashed it, saying the report was BS and that Trestle was not going to get an interview. What a public relations nightmare. And then there's Bob Stoops, the head coach of Oklahoma. I think he was interested in this job, but the Browns weren't interested in him. Who are the Browns interested in? I don't know. I don't think the Browns have a clue as to who they're interested in. I think they want somebody to hit them upside the head with a two-by-four. But if that happens, fine. But it's still not going to be a name that the fans are going to get excited about. Well, let's talk about two of the ten draft picks that the Browns have. After his Orange Bowl performance, I want to move to college football just for a moment. There is no doubt in my mind who the pick should be. The number one pick that the Browns should make this year, not a quarterback. I would go after Sammy Watkins of Clemson. He put on a show against the Buckeyes and proved to me that he is the premier wide receiver in this draft. If you put Watkins on one side, Gordon on the other, and Jordan Cameron at tight end, Brian Hoyer next year can be the quarterback of the Browns and be successful. Watkins was named the game's most valuable player as he finished the Orange Bowl with records of 16 catches for 227 yards and two touchdowns. Of course, Ohio State lost the game to Clemson in that contest, 40-35. to The Buckeyes finished the year 11-2 and 7-1 in their conference play. And after the game, Urban Meyer met with the media and talked about the loss. Great game. Didn't finish the job. And, uh, uh, you know, senior class, we uh, just said an emotional goodbye to them. That, uh, and it's not because they're seniors. It's because of what they've done. And I tried to make that perfect clear. Just because you stay someplace for a couple of years doesn't make you, you know, deserve that respect. It's what you did and how you did it. So, did you give any consideration to putting Kenny in for Braxton, given how his shoulder was? I asked him. He said, "I'm, I'm fine. He's a soldier. He's a warrior." And uh, I asked him. I mean, if he couldn't go, he, he, I think on the two-point play he had to come out. Uh, but he said he's ready to go. And. After 12 wins and a good season to have two losses at the end, what do you think the feeling of this team will be heading into the offseason? Oh, it's going to be great. I think uh, you're a student athlete at Ohio State University. you a great degree. Uh, a bunch of coaches out recruiting their tails off and uh, uh, trying to build for championships in the future. And that's, uh, I mean, it's going to be stink. It's going to stink for a while, probably a long while, because uh, we just didn't finish, and it was right there to finish. Well, what Miller or what Urban Meyer was talking about was his decision to leave Braxton Miller in the game when he was obviously suffering suffering from injured ribs. As far as the second pick that the Browns have in the first round, I would go after Carlos Hyde of Ohio State. Hyde ran for 113 yards against Clemson. That would give the Browns some offensive weapons they haven't had since 2007 and even going further back to the Browns before the move. I would even package up some picks together to get Hyde if I had to move up in the first round to get him. Then I would go after a quarterback later in the second or third round, and that would be A.J. McCarron of Alabama. That kid is a winner, a proven winner, a proven leader. 
let him sit a couple years behind Hoyer and learn how to play quarterback in the NFL. Now back to Ohio State, Braxton Miller has announced that he will return for his senior year in Columbus. Now the Buckeyes now starts the recruiting season. Their next game will be August 30th in Baltimore, and they'll be taking on the Naval Academy. But for now, after winning 24 in a row over the last two years and then losing the last two, this loss is going to be a stinging one for the Ohio State Buckeyes. Well, a lot of news coming out of the NFL, especially today where the Washington Redskins have chosen Jay Gruden to replace Mike Shanahan. You're right, I said Jay. Okay? (laughs) Not the other Gruden. Gruden is the younger brother of John Gruden. And he spent the last three seasons as the Cincinnati Bengals offensive coordinator. The Bengals won the AFC North in 2013 thanks in part to an attack that steadily improved under Gruden's watch. Cincinnati finished fourth in yards gained, and points scored in the regular season. He'll take over for Mike Shanahan, who was fired on December 30th after one of the most stormiest and disappointing of his four years with the team. Shanahan had one year remaining on his deal when he was terminated, and he finished 24-41 and with the team and reached the playoffs once. Now, Gruden reportedly signed a five-year deal to coach the Redskins. No money was announced, but of course, he's going to get to work with Robert Griffin III, and that will be a very mounting task for Jay Gruden in his first head coaching job. Well, the NFL playoffs will continue this weekend. It's the divisional round. Let's take a look at the games and get some interesting opinions as to what's going to happen over the weekend. The first game will be Saturday at 425 in the afternoon. That will be the New Orleans Saints traveling to the Pacific Northwest to take on the team with the best record in football, the Seattle Seahawks. New Orleans just finished off their first playoff win on the road in the team's history. Now they go into the toughest and loudest home venue in the NFL, that being Seattle. But Pete Prisco of CBS Sports doesn't think the Saints will be intimidated, especially after losing to the Seahawks in Washington a few weeks ago, 34-7. to No, I don't. And the reason is they've been through these kind of wars before. They've, uh, you know, they proved they could win on the road last week, and they also won a Super Bowl uh, with this pretty much the same group or a lot of the same guys. So uh, you have Drew Brees. You go on the road. You can travel. And last week they ran the football a little bit against Philadelphia. I think they'll try and do more of that against Seattle this week. Meanwhile, the Saints' number one priority is to contain Russell Wilson to win. Pat Kerwin from CBS Sports explains how the Saints plan to do that. Well, Russell, first up, they're a left-handed running team, which sets up perfect for Russell Wilson, and they pounded the left side. They didn't have a lot of success, but it opened up everything else. There was a ride keeper, a bunch of ride keepers by Russell Wilson. He's a contain breaker to his right. He has the bootleg game to his right. And so when you look at New Orleans, here's their challenge. They sacked him one time the last time in his 300-yard passing day, and so what does that mean? Russell Wilson, 7-1 and all-time uh, when he gets sacked like that. So, and the interceptions, none. And what happens then? Russell Wilson, 17-1 and in his career. So New Orleans really failed to contain him, I think. And Russell's had a couple games lately that he's been contained. If they contain Russell, you'll see Marshawn Lynch have 150 yards rushing. The second game on Saturday will be Indianapolis at New England out of the AFC. That's going to be at 8.15 Saturday night. Chuck Pagano, head coach of the Colts, said Andrew Luck will go down as one of the best ever to play quarterback after he led the Colts come from behind win over Kansas City last week. Pete Prisco of CBS Sports doesn't exactly agree with that yet. Boy, we rush to put people in that category. What is that category? People always talk about elite. Who's elite? Look, you got to win Super Bowls to be considered elite, and he hasn't won one yet. I think he will win one, maybe multiple Super Bowls. But what he did last week against Kansas City was phenomenal. I mean, and the best thing about that, the ball was taken out of the offensive coordinator's hands because it had to be. They gave it to Andrew Luck. He was down 28 points. He played up tempo, threw it around 
It was like he was in the backyard throwing the ball around. That's what they need to do. This is Andrew Luck's team. You can't line up and play power football. You have to let him throw it around. New England and Bill Belichick have to find a way to slow down Luck and his favorite receiver, T.Y. Hilton, who have combined for 369 receiving yards in his last two games. That coming according to CBS Sports expert commentator Pat Kerwin. He's uh, really answered the bell since the loss of Reggie Wayne. We've tracked it. I'll go back to last year's game. He had six catches for 100 yards and two touchdowns against the Patriots, but Reggie Wayne was on the field. They were dealing with Reggie Wayne. Now there's no Reggie Wayne. Bill Belichick, pretty famous for taking your top scoring weapon away from you. They will cut, will cut X, we call it, uh, coverage where he's going to get a guy underneath him and then one on top of him. Make Andrew Luck go somewhere else. Fleener and the rest of those guys can't beat you. So they'll overplay T.Y. Hilton um, in order to make sure that, that he's not the one that beats those guys. That is going to be the two games on Saturday. It will be New Orleans and Seattle, Indianapolis and New England. Now on Sunday, game number one is at 105. That will be San Francisco at Carolina. This should be a very physical matchup in Carolina on Sunday. And, of course, Brian Billick shares his thoughts on this divisional matchup from Fox Sports. Billick takes a look at the San Francisco-Carolina playoff game. I happen to have that game for Fox. And Carolina, with their physical defense, their punishing running attack, <clears throat> were able to get a tough road win on the road at the stick in San Francisco. But I think this is a different San Francisco team that they're going to face this year or this game in Carolina. One, they've got Michael Crabtree back. And the last time they played, Vernon Davis and Anquan Bolden were the only threats that Colin Kaepernick had down the field. And Vernon Davis went down early in the game with a concussion. So to have those two players healthy and Michael Crabtree back and healthy, also Alden Smith was just back in the lineup, only took about a dozen or so snaps in that game. This is going to be a much fresher San Francisco 49er team that has a lot more weapons to throw at Carolina. Now, both are playing good defense, both are committed to the run, and both have quarterbacks that are able to make plays with their feet, primarily on third down. So what this game could very likely come down to is those quarterbacks' ability to make plays down the field in the passing game, and in that regard, I think the 49ers and Colin Kaepernick have a big edge. Carolina won the only meeting earlier this year, 10-9. to That was in Carolina, so this is a rematch between these two ball clubs. And also on Sunday, rounding out the weekend schedule, at 4.40, San Diego will be playing at Denver. Now, the Chargers won in Denver on a Thursday night about a month ago, but don't look for a repeat, thanks to Peyton Manning and the no-huddle offense. Brian Billick examines this game at Mile High Stadium in Denver. The good thing about the San Diego Chargers going into Denver, they're going to be very comfortable playing the Denver Broncos. If you haven't faced Peyton Manning before, if you haven't been into Mile High before, that's a lot to deal with, particularly if this is in the AFC playoffs. But San Diego obviously is very comfortable in that situation, in particular with defensive coordinator John Pagano for the San Diego Chargers that has a good solid scheme and a good solid feel for how you attack the Denver Bronco offense. The key is you've got to be multiple. They seem to match up very well man for man. And the key for Denver, obviously, is can they run the ball? They haven't, even in their win against uh, San Diego last uh, in, during the regular season, and even in their loss, they weren't able to run the ball very well. And John Pagano knows, look, I'm going to give Peyton Manning all the runs he wants. I think my front seven or my front six can handle that. I'm not going to give him the matchups down the field that he's going to like, even though he's got that gifted group of wide receivers and tight ends. So they know how to play Peyton Manning. Still, this is the number one seed are the Denver Broncos. They're at home. They're going to be fresh. And for San Diego, after a big road win going to Cincinnati, they kind of feel like they may be backed into the playoffs. They're playing with house money. They were a very relaxed group against Kansas City. I expect the same. Be a very relaxed group, an aggressive group going into Denver. But still, Peyton Manning, I've got to believe at home, is going to make this a very tough out for the San Diego Chargers. You know, the most interesting question I've heard this week is what road team has the best chance to win out of these four games? I think it's San Francisco. I think San Francisco is on a mission, and I think they are going to beat Carolina. That's the way I look at those ball games. Well, Johnny Football is going pro. It was announced Wednesday that Johnny Manziel, the 2012 Heisman Trophy winner, has filed the official paperwork declaring himself eligible for the draft in May. He is widely projected as a first-round draft selection. 
He's coming off of a second productive season as the Texas A&M quarterback. He threw for over 7,800 yards and 63 touchdowns while rushing for over 2,100 yards and 30 more scores over his two-year career at Texas A&M. Well, Charlie Strong got his first taste of the media throng that surrounds the Texas football coaching job Monday when he was officially introduced as the head football coach. And he says his number one priority is he has to get used to the limelight of being in Texas. After he gets used to the limelight, the mundane work of the offseason begins, according to Strong. He made it clear that while recruiting rankings are nice, Texas shouldn't get caught up in the stars. He plans on instilling a toughness in his team, starting with work in the weight room by putting together an off-season program. Now, before accepting this new position and leaving his home in Louisville, Strong relied on his mentors, Urban Meyer and Lou Holtz, in making the decision to move to Texas from Louisville. Well, you know, I had a, co- a chance to co- uh, to talk with Urban. I had a chance to talk to Coach Holtz. And Coach Holtz, he gave me some really good advice. He said, stick with me. Just be yourself. You know, it's, it's no different anywhere else you've been. You're a football coach. You have values. You you know what you need to do. You know how to direct a football team. You know how to run a team. You don't need to change anything about you. Just take what you have uh, had a foundation of and just go use it and make sure that you use it the right way and do it the right way because it's all about the integrity within your program. It's all about a commitment within your program. It's all about accountability and responsibility. Well, you have to be very aggressive, and, and, and the players have to know that, and players have to be held accountable for their actions. And you're right, it is. It, life is about relationships, and if you can just build on the relationships of young people and then make them understand that their attitude is going to reflect their future and make sure that they're heading in the right direction. And they will they will grow as your program grows, and they will just get stronger and stronger. And it did not take long for Strong to collect his first critic, which caused a firestorm earlier this week. Texas businessman and Longhorns booster Red McCombs called Strong's hiring a kick in the face during an appearance on ESPN 1250 in San Antonio Monday. That was the day that Strong was introduced. McCombs previously championed current ESPN analyst and former Tampa Bay Bucks coach John Gruden as the man Texas should hire, and he made no secret he was not happy about Strong being the coach. I was a little bit stunned uh, when uh, Charlie was given that job, Then I was more stunned when I found out how much they were going to pay him. I don't have any doubt for what Charlie's the fine coach. I think he'd probably make a great position coach, maybe a coordinator, but I don't believe that uh, what should be one of the three most powerful university programs in the, in the world, right at UT Austin. I, I don't. I don't think it adds up. I think it's a kick in the face. I'm a team player. Uh, I'll support them all I can. Uh, I just. I just think they went about it wrong, and I. I, I think they. Uh, they uh, made the selection wrong. Matter of fact, McCombs even said that Steve Patterson, the new Texas athletic director who made this hire could put coaches in the room and just go eeny, meeny, miny, mo, and he would get a better pick than Charlie Strong was. Well, on Wednesday, on the Dan Patrick Show, Strong responded to McCombs' comment. Well, I, a lot of times, you know, it, it, it happens, and there's going to be statements made, but you, you can't worry about that. It's, you know, you just move on, and, and you, know, you have a job to do, and you can't worry about what people say or think. You, you still, you're going to get, I'm going to get judged by my work here. Let the fun begin in Texas. And with Strong gone, Louisville has found a familiar face to replace him. Louisville has hired Western Kentucky's Bobby Petrino, who was the coach at Louisville from 2003 through 2006. He has apparently signed a seven-year deal to become head coach of the Cardinal. we do each and every week it's time now for our the good the bad and the ugly segment for this week's ultimate sports talk show and this may seem like a bad story however i look at it as being as good because it may finally bring justice to the woman who accused Jameis winston of rape in florida she plans to file a civil suit against the florida state quarterback and the tallahassee police department and most probably 
Florida State University, according to ABC News on Wednesday. In an exclusive interview with ABC, the woman's attorney said that she wants heads to roll, that absolutely you will see a civil suit, according to attorney Pat Carroll. You cannot have the law enforcement that is not held to be accountable. The timing and handling of the case by authorities has been an issue since the investigation first came to public light in November. The alleged incident occurred in December of 2012, at which time the woman filed a police report, but Tallahassee police did not hand the case over to the local prosecutor until November of this year. Winston's attorney, Tim Jansen, has maintained Winston and the accuser had consensual sex. Winston was 18 at the time of the encounter, and DNA matching Winston's was reportedly found in the women's underwear. On Wednesday, Carol told ABC that her client has been on the receiving end of anger by Florida State fans who learned her identity and that the woman has been warned by authorities not to return to Florida State. I think it's good that she is going to try to get her day of justice in a courtroom. The bad, of course, goes back to the NFL. Last week, Cowboys owner and general manager Jerry Jones said that he would be in favor of expanding the NFL playoffs. And on Tuesday, Commissioner Roger Goodell agreed with Jones, saying that the playoff expansion could be in the NFL's future. Goodell says it is under serious consideration. The bottom line, which of course is money, but Goodell would want to make you think that it's making the game as entertaining as possible, something the NFL has had great success with during the entirety of the 2013 regular season. Goodell said the races that the league had this past season, we had 16 games every weekend. The final weekend we have divisional games, so your opponent is a division opponent, and 13 of those 16 games had playoff implications on the final Sunday. Frankly, I think the playoff system is just fine the way it is in the NFL, but Roger Goodell keeps trying to tinker to get more money involved in the league. And finally, the ugly for tonight, again, back to the NFL, where a prison inmate is initiating a lawsuit and asking a judge to force the NFL to stop the playoffs and let the Pittsburgh Steelers in over the San Diego Chargers. The Baltimore Sun on Wednesday reported that Daniel Spuck, who online records identify as an inmate at the State Correctional Institute at Mercer, Pennsylvania, filed a motion earlier this month against the NFL and Commissioner Roger Goodell in the U.S. District Court for the Western District of Pennsylvania requesting a temporary emergency injunction to halt the playoffs over a blown call in Week 17 between the Kansas City Chiefs and the San Diego Chargers. The injunction, which is filed as the first step in a civil suit, is stamped as received by the court clerk on January 2nd before last weekend's wild card games were played. Of course, everybody knows that on the play in question, Chiefs kicker Ryan Suckup missed a 41-yard field goal attempt with four seconds left in regulation, instead sending the game against the Chargers to overtime. But the Chargers were in an illegal formation on that missed field goal and should have been penalized, but, of course, the NFL officials did not make the call. And that would have given Suckup another chance at the field goal, only from five yards closer. Had he made it, the Chargers almost simply or certainly would have been eliminated, and the Steelers would have made the playoffs. Even the league agrees that the penalty should have been called. Now, it's going to be up to a judge as to whether or not this will go into effect. Very doubtful, but hey, there's always a chance. Hey, and that's going to do it for our the good, the bad, and the ugly segment for tonight. Greg Maddox, Tom Glavin, and Frank Thomas were all voted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame on Wednesday, and that means it's time to talk about baseball on these cold winter nights, and that means I'm going to bring in my co-host for the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show during the baseball season, Mark Donahue. Mark, how are your holidays? Well, they're over. 
and that's as good as I can make it. Uh, I, I like them over, but no, it, it was nice. We had some friends up for the holidays, got to see my son, so uh, all in all, pretty good. The three guys that were voted into the Hall of Fame yesterday, did that fit what you think is who should have been voted in? Well, certainly, and, and what I think the most amazing thing is there were 16 writers in this country who did not vote for Greg Maddox. Now, those are supposed to be baseball experts, but 16 of them said, no, he wasn't quite good enough for me. So I, I don't know what they look for other than just abject incompetence on their part, uh, but, but certainly Greg Maddox, Tom Glavin, and you know, next year it's going to be John Smoltz, too. And you, you think back to what that Braves team did back in the 90s, winning 14 consecutive division titles in the West uh, and the East. Uh, it's just absolutely amazing. Uh, the, that team is so under the radar, mainly because they only won one world championship. Had that team won another one or two, they would have been in the same conversation with the with the 27 Yankees and the, the the Big Red Machine and other great dynasties. But when you think when you had when you had to go to Atlanta and you had to face Smoltz, Maddox, and Glavin in a three game series, life was not good. But those guys certainly deserved it, and, and I think Frank Thomas did too, albeit he's the first inductee into the Hall of Fame that was primarily a DH. And I'm glad baseball got over that that hang up because he was a, he was a fantastic hitter over 500 home runs, 1700 RBIs or more, and he he was certainly deserving as well. Mark Donahue, our guest on tonight's show. Mark, with Bobby Cox going in this year, the manager Glavin, Maddox. We've already talked about John Smoltz. Chipper Jones will be going in soon. Boy, that team really was a monster team, wasn't it? That's right. He was a little later than that. He he did play. He overlapped those guys, certainly. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it, it, it was an amazing team. And, uh, again, they're kind of under the radar uh, when when great teams are mentioned. But uh, I, I'd, bet, I'd put the collective ERA of that team over 10 years, say from the mid-'90s to the uh, mid-2000s, and I'll bet you that ERA was as low as any team has been in the last 25 or 30 years. I, I know you're primarily a National League guy following the Reds, but what kind of memories do you have of Maddox and Glavin? Well, uh, the the consistency that they they had when they pitched, that to me that was the, the overriding factor they had. And I remember an anecdote where Javi Lopez, their catcher, when he was a rookie, uh, he was obviously nervous and, and went to those guys early on and had a meeting with them, and he said, well, what are we going to do for signs? And they both laughed and said, I'll tell you what, Javi, don't worry about signs. You put your glove where you want the ball, and it'll be there. And he laughed. And he didn't believe him at first, but that's exactly what happened. <laughs> so uh, th that's how overwhelmingly uh, – powerful they were without being power pitchers. Neither one of them ever threw a pitch in the big leagues beyond 92 miles an hour. And they're both in the Hall of Fame. So I think when you when you look at what is grown in terms of power pitching today and how overrated it is, and to the extent that these guys come in and they can throw 100 miles an hour for about two years, and then they get lit up because they don't know how to pitch. And what they ought to do is sit down for an offseason and look at every game that Maddox pitched and look at his speed, 85 to 92. Uh, he was never more than six inches off the, off the plate. And, it, you know, it's an amazing testament to what talent can do for a pitcher as opposed to just having a big arm and throwing the ball 100 miles an hour. What really changed his career was pitching coach a Dick Pohl uh, with the Cubs at the time, who convinced him to back off that fastball and, and replace it with a changeup. And once he did that, he had he had good stuff. But people forget. I think his first season in the big leagues, he was something like four and seven or four and eight, and had an ERA you know mid fours or five. 
Uh, and there wasn't much excitement about Greg Maddox. But all of a sudden, he learned to hit the corners. Uh, he threw that left that uh, that change up to left-handers. They had to go to the opposite field, or they were going to ground out to second. And he learned the pitch. And he learned how to pitch. And he was a he and Glavin together were, I think, the most intellectual pitchers that baseball has seen for a number of years. And it, that is the, the problem with these young kids is they come up blowing everybody away in grade school and high school, and they never learn the art of pitching, and these guys certainly did. But I think the guy that probably has to feel as hollow as anybody today is Craig Biggio, missing out by two votes, Mark. I mean, two votes. That, <laughs> two votes might as well be 200 the way it sits right now. Yeah, that, that's a heartbreaker. Uh, he'll certainly get in next year, no doubt about it, but... Uh, you, you know, you got to be, man, uh, I'd rather lose by 20 votes than two. Uh, but that's, you know, that's the, I guess, the luck of the draw. Uh, I don't think it gets any better next year for these guys. There's going to be a good class next year, too. Uh, but what happened was last year, if you recall, no one was inducted into the Hall of Fame. So there was a backlog of good players. And uh, I know we're going to get into this in a minute, but the, the, the PEDs have certainly had a role in the Hall of Fame voting, and it certainly had a role in people being overlooked. And it's unfortunate, but uh, baseball has to deal with this at some point in the future. Well, and I don't know which is worse, Mark. I mean, yeah, let, let's get into it. The PD, PED uh, steroid scandal, or what's going on with the Baseball Writers of America, especially the CSPN Dan Lebetard situation. I mean... You know, Mark, you look at that, and for selling your your baseball ballot to Deadspin, obviously these guys are not taking this with the integrity that they expect the baseball players to put forth. That was the biggest ego pump I've ever seen. This guy did that for himself, a grandstand play, and he ought to be suspended for at least a year that he's not allowed to vote next year or two years or three years and you know the, the the writers not all but some of the writers who are voting I think there's what 581 who are allowed to vote something like that uh, many of them are not baseball writers they write for other sports but they are given the right from the Baseball Writers Association to write about baseball and I think that list needs to be called every year Find out who are the regular guys who are following the sport, who understand the sport. To me, Barry Bonds had Hall of Fame statistics before anybody suspects he used PEDs. I, I, I know you and I disagree on this. I think you have to say, we're going to forgive everybody. Because if you don't forgive everybody, most guys are going to be punished by this. And I don't think anybody in the Hall of Fame, I don't think one person in the Hall of Fame would question whether or not Barry Bonds deserves to be in the Hall of Fame based on his talent and his statistics. Now, are they inflated 10% because of it? Maybe. I don't know. All I know is being stronger does not allow you to hit the ball. <laughs> you can hit it further, perhaps, but you still have to have the eye-hand coordination, which has nothing to do with PEDs. And I, I, my personal opinion is baseball ought to suck it up and say, you know what, we, we had a problem with this. It's now under control, uh, but everybody's forgiven. Uh, if you do it again, you, you know, you're not forgiven. But in many cases, the PEDs as defined by Major League Baseball were not illegal when the guys took them. And that's why I don't understand why baseball doesn't just say, hey, uh, new, new rule, we're going to go on, you can't use them again, and if you do use them again, we're going to suspend you for a year. But outside of that, who doesn't believe that Barry Bonds deserves to be in the Hall of Fame? Well, I agree with you on that, Mark. As far as I'm concerned, the Hall of Fame is not a hall when you don't have Pete Rose, the all-time hits leader in it, or Barry Bonds, the all-time home run leader in it. And one thing I do want to let you know, this has just come across 
the Baseball Writers Association of America has stripped ESPN radio host and Miami Herald writer Dan Levitard of his Hall of Fame vote for life, they announced. He turned over his vote to Deadspin this year, albeit for no compensation. They also will not allow Levitard to attend a baseball game this year as a credentialed media member for one season. I think it's an outstanding penalty against Dan Levitard of ESPN. But I can't let you go, Mark, without asking you a couple of Cincinnati Reds questions. First of all, former Cleveland Indian Grady Sizemore. It's rumored that he could be signed by the Reds coming up very soon. And are you surprised Brandon Phillips, who was the target of so many trade rumors during the winter meetings, are you surprised Phillips is still a member of the Cincinnati Reds going into spring training? Well, the second question first, no, I'm not surprised Brandon Phillips is still part of the team. Number one, they couldn't get what they wanted for him. But number two, I think the Reds are a better team with him. Forget money. Uh, I just think you have a second baseman who feels like he does, who can hit 20, 25 home runs, drive in 100 runs. I mean, that's, that's hard to replace. I don't care who you are. Forget the money he's making. Uh, with regard to Grady Sizemore, I think he'd be a great pickup for the Reds. And the last thing I heard was that they, that they were going to sign him subject to a physical. Now, everybody knows, and, and the thing that people forget about Grady Sizemore, he's only 31 years old. And th- this guy could have another five, six, seven years left of him if his knee and his back are, are, are healthy. It's, it's a big if, but I think he'd be a great pickup for the Reds. It's a low-risk deal. You give him a deal where it's lots of incentives, and I think he could really make a contribution to the Reds, and, and I hope just for his sake uh, he, he gets healthy and gets to play with somebody. Mark, thanks a lot for joining us here this evening talking about the Hall of Fame vote, Dan Lebetard and the Cincinnati Reds. Let's move into other baseball news on tonight's Ultimate Sports Talk show. This just came across the wire also. Detroit Tigers ace Justin Verlander is in the recovery process this Major League Baseball offseason after undergoing surgery on his abdomen this morning. The team's official Twitter account shared the news saying he underwent successful core muscle repair surgery this morning. He will undergo physical rehab for the next six weeks and will be reevaluated at the end of that time, although it is expected that Verlander will report to spring training at the beginning of March. Also in baseball, the Cleveland Indians are changing their primary logo from Chief Wahoo to the block letter C. While the Wahoo logo still will be seen on hats and jerseys, it seems as if the organization could be slowly moving towards taking Wahoo out permanently. This has been happening gradually, as opposed to abruptly taking away something the fans have identified with for decades something I have been saying they've been secretly doing ever since the Dolans took over ownership of the team. This is also an announcement that is being made so secretly, it's not even on the Indians' website, and the team waited until the Hall of Fame vote was disclosed to come out and make this announcement. And there's still money to be made on merchandise, right? The revenue has to be a determining factor into why they haven't wiped away Wahoo completely, which means that an overriding majority of Indians fans don't want to get rid of Chief Wahoo. Now, to me, it's coddling a vocal minority of about 4,000 people. I have hats that have Chief Wahoo on it, and I will continue to wear those hats until the day I die. I am not interested in the Block C. But the Indians supposedly are going to look into getting rid of all of those blocks or all of those chief wahoo symbols and move to the block C. Well, if you were tuned into the Big Ten Network on Sunday night when you watched Iowa take on Wisconsin, you got to see one of the most fiery exhibitions of a coach getting upset at an official since Bobby Knight has left the Big Ten. And the Big Ten made Fran McCaffrey of Iowa pay for it. They have suspended him for one game and fined Iowa $10,000 
for his outburst during that loss. McCaffrey received back-to-back technical fouls and was ejected for arguing with officials midway through the second half of Sunday's game. The Big Ten said McCaffrey's actions violated the league's sportsmanship policy. Oh, McCaffrey will sit out tonight's home game against Northwestern, and assistant coach Kirk Spurraw will take his place. Iowa spokesman Steve Rowe told the AP that tonight's scheduled Fran McCaffrey bobblehead night will likely be rescheduled. McCaffrey apologized for the second time in as many days on Tuesday, saying that he regrets his actions and is ready to move on. Hey, I saw it. I didn't think McCaffrey bumped into the official. I thought the official bumped into McCaffrey. Nonetheless, he's been suspended for one game. Let's move on. But maybe the Big Ten should look into their officials nonetheless. And let's move out of college basketball now and into professional basketball, where there was a big trade that happened this week in the NBA, and it happened just north of here in Cleveland, Ohio, where the Cavaliers traded for Luol Ding Monday night. It was a move that had been inevitable since the Andrew Bynum situation blew up on the team and forced the issue. The Cavaliers have floundered this season, looking lost, inconsistent, and even mediocre at times. This was the season the Cavs had banked everything on making the playoffs. And after mixed results in two drafts since acquiring Kyrie Irving, general manager Chris Grant went all in on progress at all costs this year. That the Cavaliers managed as well as they did in this trade is a credit to their manipulation of the situation. The Cavs gave up Bynum, who they would have been forced to waive Tuesday anyway in order to avoid paying him another $6 million, a pick from the Kings that was so protected that you would need a safe cracker to really get to it, the right to swap in 2015, which is the plan, goes correctly, won't have any value anyway, and a couple of second-round picks for an all-star and locker room leader in Deng. So, yep, the Cavs did pretty well. And on top of that, Deng is happy to be a member of the Cleveland Cavaliers. You know, it was a surprise. Um, you know, I had a, I just, I've been very lucky to, to, you know, not a lot of guys could say, you know, they've been with one organization for so long and uh, such a great organization. It's just, um, I was definitely surprised. I don't, I don't think, you know, you hear stuff, you hear rumors. Um, you know, you say some of it's true, some of it's not, but. Uh, when it happened, you know, I just uh, I couldn't believe it. You know, it just it took a while to hit me. Um, but uh, you know, it's it's not like I'm uh, you know I'm 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 stopping uh, from playing basketball. You know, I just I've been traded from one great organization to another one, and um, you know, it's just uh, you know that that book is closed, and uh, I'm I'm really looking forward to you know to starting brand new and um, and you know get going. It would appear. The Dang is just what the Cavs want, a wing scorer that averages close to 20 points a game, grabs seven rebounds, and dishes out assists. He's coming from one franchise that is defensively oriented, like the Bulls, to another one in the Cavs under Mike Brown, and his leadership should prove to be invaluable for this team. But how does Dang actually fit in with the Cavs? So far, so good, according to Dang, at practice on Wednesday. First of all, great group of guys. You know, um, just from being here so far, it's just uh, everything is set up for winning. Um, and it's just, uh, it, it excites me that, you know, I'm leaving one team that's uh, very competitive and I'm coming to a team that's just as competitive and is very excited about the future. Um, and it's just for me, it's, it's great to be a part of something that, you know, um, a, you know, an organization that wants to win, motivated, willing to do whatever it takes to win. Um, and for a basketball player, for any pro athlete, that's what you want to be a part of. And I'm really excited to be a part of it. I'm excited to to, to get going. Um, I had fun today at practice. It's going to take a while to you know to get all the plays down, but uh, the offense is not uh, it's not hard to figure out. So. Well, that's a big worrisome when Deng says the offense is not hard to figure out. That is the biggest complaint about Mike Brown and the coach of the Cleveland Cavaliers. And one other NBA note before we sign off tonight. Did you see J.R. Smith on Tuesday night lean over after coming into the ball game at the free throw lane and untie Sean Marion's shoes of the Dallas Mavericks? 
Well, for that little indiscretion, J.R. Smith of the New York Knicks was fined $50,000 by the National Basketball Association. And that's going to do it for tonight's show. That music says it's time for us to go. As I said, thanks to Mark Donahue for being our guest. Thanks to you, most of all, for listening. Our thanks to Greg Mitchell for being our producer. Join us again next Thursday night at 7 o'clock for another Ultimate Sports Talk show here at UltimateSportsTalk.com. I'm Dave Mitchell. Until next week, have a good weekend, a good week. Enjoy the NFL playoffs. I'll talk to you next week. Good night, everybody.